We, you know, launched in Texas in, in May and then opened up to California later in the year in 2013. And then, you know, realized we still don't understand a ton about insurance itself. And we're hitting this chicken and the egg problem of insurance carriers being interested, but a lot of them not really wanting to take the leap and work with us until they saw some traction on our end, where we needed some of them to work with us in order to attract the consumers and make sure the economics worked out to, to pay for some of that marketing to go drive consumers to our site. My name is Mitesh Karia, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Data Officer at the Zebra. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Mitesh Karia built something he thought already existed for matching you with the best insurance provider. All this and more on Code Story. The tech career of Mitesh Karia started early as his father was an electrical engineer bringing home a TRS-80 with a tape drive. Computers just clicked as he dialed into BBS systems, built computers installed with Slackware and Linux. Early on, he also dabbled in AI. Is that even a thing, to dabble in AI? But he built neural networks to predict weather patterns. He has played competitive sports for years. In fact, he has won a national championship in the Masters Division of Ultimate Frisbee and met his wife playing the sport as well. He bases a lot of his leadership philosophy in tech around what he has learned from sports. Self-proclaimed, he's one of those people that just can't sit still. In January 2013, he was approached to create and own the technology and team around a product that allowed people to compare insurance providers from scratch. Mitesh made the decision to onboard and started the journey to build the product. This is the creation story of the Zebra. The Zebra is an online insurance advisor. We're we're there to help connect consumers with the right insurance for them. So we, you know, we started very much focused on auto insurance. It's the largest category of of PNC, which is property and casualty insurance. And it's something that every adult driver needs to have in the US. The original uh, founder of the Zebra, Adam Lyons, had uh, gone through an incubator in Pittsburgh called Alpha Lab. And, you know, kind of taken this idea that he had seen after traveling through different parts of the world, had worked in the UK and had seen some of how the some companies like Compare the Market, Money Supermarket in the UK had really revolutionized and, and disrupted the industry there and brought that idea to the, the US. And so after taking this fledgling idea through the incubator, raising a, uh, an initial seed round of, of funding and moving down to Austin with our lead investors at the time, Silverton Partners being based out of Austin, I met them probably within a, a couple weeks of them moving down, them being Adam and uh, then co-founder Josh Dzibiak. So I met them within a, a couple weeks of moving down. And when Adam described the idea to me, the, uh, the first thought that popped into my mind was, wait, that doesn't exist. And so, uh, you know, right away, I kind of thought this is something that it's not a matter of if it exists, it's a matter of when so- someone's going to do this. 
And then, you know, I really liked the, the idea of the broad scope of it, of being able to be heavily involved in not only building the technology and solving the problem, but building the team, building our culture. And that was something that I, you know, I really wanted to do and focus on. Um, and, you know, as a technologist who doesn't love the idea of a, of a greenfield project and being able to, to start from scratch. And so, so with that in, you know, early 2013 is when I, uh, I got going working on this and, uh, and faced our first challenge of none of us really truly understood the auto insurance industry. Uh, we didn't have any, anything working to, to work with, didn't have a team and, uh, and needed to go get something out in market to start testing and, uh, and iterating. Well, tell me about the MVP, that first product you built, you were involved in. How long did it take to build? What sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? Starting out, as I mentioned, we didn't really have anything to, to work with. And we had a commitment to the board that we would launch our first MVP, I believe in about three and a half months. And so we had started, uh, you know, prior to me joining, contracting with uh, an agency for some of the design and some of the front end development. And so while focusing on helping guide that and coming up to speed, I also, you know, simultaneously started working on, all right, how are we going to get rates for these carriers? How are we going to actually, you know, deliver on what we wanted to do in terms of a comparison? And so scoured all around looking for companies for what was in the industry tools, managed to find a, you know, a couple of different companies that, that we were able to integrate with and, and provide us some information early on to help bootstrap the, the rates and, and the connections we had to carriers. And then really just focused on how we used proven technologies to stand something up quickly without taking too many bets on, you know, hypothetical future features or functionality that we, we may or may not need so that we remained agile and didn't have a ton to to really kind of support. And so we started with uh, with Django. Everything was Python based. Everything's up. Uh, it was up at AWS from day one up in the cloud really focused primarily on building this back-end experience and let the agency we were working with focus on the front end so that we could integrate it later. And then, you know, in terms of, uh, of bringing on people, we had one, you know, junior developer that was part of the team when I started that had come down from Pittsburgh with uh, Adam and Josh. And then, you know, I reached out to some previous contacts I had in India to get a couple other people on the team at the time, knowing that we didn't have the time to really recruit in Austin at, at that point, but we would need to eventually. And so we we sat down and, uh, you know, and essentially worked pretty much nonstop to get to our first, uh, first MVP, which was focused on Texas. And we launched end of May, 2013, started working on it in mid-February. Well, with any MVP, Right. You've got to, you know, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, okay, we're going to cut this feature. We're going to accept this technical debt in the short term. So what decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term and how did you cope with those decisions? So I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Kent Beck's book, Extreme Programming, that was popular in the kind of mid to late 90s. So back then, that was when, you know, it was pretty common and typical for software you know, development life cycles to be, you know, six, 12 months, you know, kind of a, a, a big bang, you, you kind of wait, 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 everything's delayed, and then you get everything at once. 
And, you know, a lot of what Kent Beck was talking about in many ways became the underpinnings of a lot of, you know, what's taken for granted these days and, and more agile modern development methodologies. But one of the things that really resonated with me in his book was this notion of always asking, is there a requirement for this feature right now? And if not, you don't build it. You don't incur that hypothetical cost and the cost of maintenance right away. You push that down to when that really becomes a need and a feature, and then the, the cost of that becomes true and apparent. And so a lot of the trade-offs and decisions we made were really focused on, on that, which is we did not speculate on any future functionality. We built very much for today, for the short term. And that gave us both, you know, that had both pros and cons. The, the pros were that we were able to move very, very quickly. And as we learned, we were able to change. The cons were we, you know, we ended up eventually over the course of years, as we did hit product market fit, we ended up with essentially PVC pipes duct taped together, you know, where you had features and things that were square pegs fit into round holes and just things that were not really well architected or, or put together. But that's because when we started out, we didn't really know what the end goal was we were going towards. The primary decisions or trade-offs we made was really, really focused on what is the most expedient way to get this done with one big caveat. And that was from day one, the other thing that I was pretty big on was the benefit and need for automated unit testing. That was one thing that I also knew we would, the only way we would be able to move quickly is if we had unit tests and, you know, pure code reviews to make sure that we weren't just introducing issues left and right and getting to a situation where we were constantly fighting fires. You know, that was also one of the decisions that I made early on that helped us very much until probably 2015 when, you know, it, our, our push to get to our Series A also forced some shorter term decisions there. But in the end, going back, I'd say we'd probably make the same decisions that we made at the times that we made them for the most part, you know, and, and the, the trade-off down the road was just a lot of technical debt to, uh, to unwind and, and deal with after reaching product market fit and getting, you know, traction with the business. Well, so you've got the MVP. How did you progress the product? How did you mature the product from there? And I'm interested in, you know, how you um, built your roadmap, how you decided this is the next most important thing to build. We actually took what wasn't a, a really straight line. Um, and so, I'll, you know, it'll, it'll take a couple of years till we got to that point where we built that roadmap. But we, you know, launched in Texas in, in May and then uh, opened up to California later in the year in 2013. And then, you know, realized that we still don't understand a ton about insurance itself. And we're hitting this chicken and the egg problem of insurance carriers being interested, but a lot of them not really wanting to take the leap and work with us and, until they saw some traction on our end where we needed some of them to work with us in order to attract the consumers and, and you know make sure the economics worked out to, to pay for some of that marketing to go drive consumers to our site. And so we pivoted our focus a little bit to building an in-house call center and agency, driving traffic to that, sometimes by you know purchasing traffic from other insurance uh, sites and focused on building tools 
for our in-house licensed insurance agents to help them you know, use the integrations and relationships that we had built to compare for consumers over the phone, bind policies, track those, those consumers, et cetera. And so for most of 2014, we focused on that. And so we did build a product roadmap around those because we had really, you know, sat down and, and tried to figure out what are the, the key things we're going to need for this agency in order to, you know, enable them to do what we had set out there, what I just kind of described. And then just, you know, hands down focused on executing on that. Then we get to 2015 as we were starting to go out and raise our Series A we started to realize that that wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't gonna be enough to, to really truly show that we had found product market fit and we had, you know, in some ways ignored the online experience too long. But at that point, we hadn't, because we hadn't really focused on the online experience, we didn't really know what it was that was gonna work. And so we went the opposite direction of constant iteration and almost going back to that early stage startup world where, you know, you're just trying things, seeing, you know, throwing things against the wall to see what sticks and moving extremely rapidly. Rather than having a product roadmap in, in 2015, we went the opposite direction and, and it was just super nimble, agile, daily meetings to, to change direction and, and double down on things that were working, you know, move people off of things that weren't. And, you know, it, it was a pretty intense and stressful time but by the end of 2015, it got us to what we needed to do, which was it allowed us to raise our Series A and keep moving forward. And where it left us, though, was with technology that hadn't really been planned out, you know, or architected or built based off of a roadmap, but which, you know, in, in some ways was working. It was generating us revenue and was enough to, to drive the business and, and raise our round. And so 2016 is then when we really focused on okay, what are the things that we need to do to grow this online business that we had built? How do we go solidify a lot of the technology we had built, harden parts of it, build tools for you know our commercialization team to go have the relationships with insurance carriers and grow them, build tools for our acquisition and marketing team to drive those consumers. And so we started to, to focus on that and, and draw out now at this point, those roadmaps and then later, uh, I want to say probably end of 2016 or early, early 2017 is when we brought on our, our first product manager. We operated like that for a little while and continued to do a lot of the things I was talking about, but it really wasn't until late 2017, I want to say, when we, we started to build our product team in earnest. So it makes sense why you switched to, you know, a little more rapid fire figuring out what was the right things to build, pulling people on and off of things that were of a more priority. How did you stay organized during that time? So, you know, it sounds like going from, you know, nowadays it's more roadmap driven, but then or during that time period, it was a little more chaotic, perhaps a little more agile. How did you stay organized during that time? Honestly, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of brute force, a uh, small team and, uh, and really, daily meetings we uh myself are now svp of engineering who at the time was our uh, you know, project manager and one of our uh, our co-founders would meet essentially every morning and walk through all of the things that we had in progress what had gone out what was working what wasn't and essentially plan out what we were doing for the day 
and you know go take it to the team to execute on it. And we had a small team that all worked in person there and were able to to communicate very quickly there. So while it was certainly frantic, there weren't large burdens in terms of communication or, or overhead there. And so that's that's a lot of how we stayed in touch and you know on top of the things that we were doing. We also we'd started to invest in a point and click BI tool called RJ Metrics. And so we were really focused on looking at numbers and charts and trends. And that's that's another part of what helped drive our focus is that we had data that we were looking at every day. So then let's switch to team. You know, so there's some some elements there where you've got a small team, right? You're you're rapid fire working through some things. But as you get success, you need to grow the team to continue to scale. How did you go about that process? And and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? You know, early on, and, and I think this shifted over time, the people that we were looking for were people with a, a strong entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of sense of ownership, and people who felt could go and take the work we're doing and drive it forward. A lot of high potential, high talent people, maybe with a little bit less experience, but that was intentional because what we didn't want were over-engineered solutions. We wanted to, to move forward. We knew that that was gonna be more important. So that's a lot of what we focused on early on. And then after we you know, raised our Series A and we started to focus now, you know, as I mentioned, more on a roadmap and, and kind of cleaning up a lot of the things that had come along the way, that's when we started to balance a lot of that with people with a lot more experience who had come from various engineering orgs. We also opened it up to people who had come from non-traditional backgrounds, but had other experiences to you know, contribute. So that at one point in 2016, half of our team you know, came from a non-traditional background, either a non-STEM major from a coding boot camp, et cetera. And you know, we found that that helped blend the experience that we had before but also not lose this sense of eagerness and hunger and, and drive and, the, the, you know, this notion of looking at things differently and, and a passion at attacking those problems. But really what we looked for in those people and something that we still look for, you know, today is this, this true sense of, of ownership, this sense of wanting to collaborate, low ego, helpfulness, tying this all back to my influences in terms of sports leadership. I, I personally am a big believer in team. We shied away from lone wolves, you know, in terms of hiring and really started to focus on people who fit our needs for a team and help make the overall team better, that, that weren't concerned about mentoring and growing the, the others. And, uh, and that was really, at the end of the day, what we looked for, in addition to, you know, to increasing needs of specialization in, in technology areas and, and more architectural background, et cetera. So how did you go about choosing individuals that are a little bit non-traditional? Was there any sort of formula there or, and perhaps not even formula, but were there characteristics like non-technical characteristics other than the ones you mentioned that, that were driving that? To be quite honest, some of it was, was intentional of wanting this diversity. Some of it was driven by needing to, to compete, right? In a, in a pretty difficult recruiting market. But a lot of it came down to looking for people with a certain drive or, or hunger, right? Which is, if you think about it, 
for anyone who's taking the leap to be in a career and then switch careers and taking that leap of faith and investing in themselves, just by, by nature of doing that, they have a certain amount of hunger and drive that is kind of proven by their desire to, to go uproot their worlds and invest in themselves. And so we looked for people like that, but also combined with a sense of humility that they looked at and said, I'm doing all of this. I also know that I don't know everything at this point and want to learn, but they're willing to bring the knowledge that they had from their other fields and other experiences to the team and, you know, be a part of that team. And so that's what we looked for. We, you know, focused a lot on their ability to be analytical and solve problems and much less on, you know, their knowledge of a particular language or, uh, you know, being able to talk about specific architectures or algorithms or data structures and, and much more focused on, can they think logically? Can they break down problems? Can they solve problems? And can they communicate? Well, let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grew? Definitely the latter. We, you know, as I mentioned, we we didn't invest in, in really a lot of future enhancements or improvements because we didn't know what we would need. And so that was something that we constantly had to balance as we grew, which is how much do we focus on scalability, reliability, observability and monitoring, and how much do we move things forward? And so we didn't really focus too much on that early on. We you know, took it from the aspect of, I, I was involved in a lot of the early decisions and, and tried to do it by general oversight and not, you know, try not to make blatantly stupid decisions, uh, you know, which can be relative and we probably made plenty of those. But so, you know, that was the way we focused on it early on. And it wasn't until we started working on a roadmap and working towards a product in 2016 that we started to pick off areas of that scalability of the architecture where we were having the biggest issues and go tackle those. And so we started pulling apart pieces of our monolith, investing in our infrastructure, in our processes, in our monitoring. And it's been a long journey, right? I, I would actually say that it took us the, the better part from early 2016 to probably, you know, mid last year to really get to that point where we kind of flip things around and we have a very scalable infrastructure. It's all, you know, using Kubernetes, we have great observability and monitoring. We've, you know, invested in our developer experience. We have, you know, a, a good incident response process and and you know, an SRE team focused on on building and managing tools for that. And so it, it took a long time to get there, but it was very much piecemeal and with a long-term vision in mind. And there's always more to do, but but yeah, definitely, definitely the latter and definitely more of this uh, just-in-time focus on, uh, on scale. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with the Zebra, what are you most proud of? I mean, it's going to sound cheesy, but really it's the team and the people. You know, that was one, as I mentioned, one of the things that drew me to the Zebra was being able to build the team uh, that I wanted to and the, the culture and getting to this point and, and seeing the growth of the people in the company, uh, the people that we've been invested in, the people that have driven the, the company that, have you know, that have pushed us forward and been a, a massive part of our success. That to me, that that's lasting. 
technology is going to change our, you know, the, the product's going to change over time, but that culture and, and what we've been able to build and give back to the, the team in terms of their growth and, and, and everything around that, that's really been the thing that I personally am the most proud of. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. <laughs> sure. Where, where to start? Because it's almost like, what, what mistake didn't I make? I'll take one that's uh, that's more around technology. So in 2016, one of the areas that we wanted to invest in to, uh, to scale was this backend service that, you know, needed to operate somewhat concurrently and asynchronously. And, you know, the it wasn't scaling the way we had built it. And at the time there was a, you know, a lot of uh, kind of noise around Golang. We looked at it and said, great, you know, this is a problem that, you know, maybe deals with concurrency. And so, you know, we should investigate and, and invest in, in building some of these backend technologies using Golang. And at the point, uh, everything in the backend had, had still been Python. So we did, we built, you know, a service uh, using Go you know, inevitably, because we didn't have the support for it, the tooling, the experience in it, it took significantly longer than it should have. When the person that knew Go the best uh, ended up leaving, we didn't have any of that experience really in, in-house. We couldn't really move forward with those services. And on top of that, we, you know, realized we didn't really need all of the benefits of concurrency and everything that, that Go provided. Right. We would we could achieve a lot of what we wanted to just by looking at something like Tornado as an you know async Python framework or or even other architectural paths. And so, you know, choosing to invest in that, choosing to invest in something where we didn't have the expertise on hand, we weren't recruiting for that or couldn't recruit as heavily, didn't have the tooling there, and really kind of uh, you know wasting one of our kind of innovation tokens on something that that didn't pan out was definitely a mistake. Now, what we ended up doing is is essentially admitting it and over time going back and, and replacing those services and, and rebuilding them in Python. You know, it took time and we were, were open about it, but that's, uh, you know, that's one of those things where, where we learned from it. And now one of the things we do discuss going forward is this notion of innovation tokens and where we should spend them. What, you know, you can't you can't innovate everywhere all the time or you get mired in just innovation and not progress. And so, uh, so you know, something that came out of it is this focus of we're, we're never going to just keep doing things because it's the way they were always done, right? We're always open to change to new technologies, to new languages, architectures, but it needs to be a thoughtful conversation and we need to consider more than just the benefits of what that technology bring but also the the implications that it has to the team, to training, to to tooling, et cetera. Well, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? As I mentioned, we our, our goal is really to, to fulfill this vision of being an advisor for people. Insurance is a complicated product. Different people need, you know, have different needs when it comes to education, when it comes to comparison. And you know, our goal is really to, to become that trusted advisor to help uh, people not only for, through auto and home, but then you know, ultimately with other walks of their, their life through life insurance and pets, et cetera. And so you know, expanding that product and our services and, and really what we provide uh, to, to reach that goal is, is what our focus is on the product. And you know, on the team, the biggest 
growth or shift is really the formation of a, you know a data organization within our team. And this is you know as of May of last year, I took on the additional role of chief data officer and helped build our team there because one of the things that's going to drive our product is the the vast amounts of data we have and the the capabilities and skills we have around our data engineering, machine learning, data science. And so you know our team, is going to continue to grow in terms of, uh, of people, you know, and areas we focus on. But one of the, the large areas of growth for the team is really going to be around our ability not only to understand the operations of the business and how things are going uh, and make decisions based on data, which we do every day, but also uh, drive operational efficiency, drive personalization, and, and a lot of that that insurance advisor vision through our use of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and other data science tools. Let's switch to you, Mitesh. Who influences the way that you work? You know, CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Who do you look up to and why? Yeah, that's a, you know, I've thought about this a lot. You know, I I don't have any one person. I have a a number of different people. And every time I, I think back to it, most of those people in some way, shape or form have been leaders. And it all has to do with their thoughtful approach to leadership, to team building, to, you know, the empathy. And it started perhaps with, you know, I, I was in Boy Scouts as a, a kid uh, and was thankful enough to stick with it long enough to get my Eagle Scout. And my, uh, my Scout Master at the time was probably the first person that I think back to as having a strong influence in terms of my leadership philosophy. He was firm, empathetic, helped coach me and grow me, but also pushed me. And then, you know, fast forward later, as I mentioned, playing sports and leading sports teams, I I read a lot of books from the likes of, you know, Phil Jackson from Coach K. I went to Duke, I was a big college basketball fan and a number of, of sports leadership and, you know, business leadership books as well. And so I wouldn't say that there's any one person, but I'd say it's kind of a, a group of a, a number of different peoples, typically leaders, and, and primarily focused on their approaches to building teams. Well, we talked about mistakes, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and one that, you know, you kind of look back and say there's a difference, right? Because if you go back and without the benefit of hindsight or, or, you know, or foresight at the time and the information we had, you'd likely make a lot of the same decisions. But, you know, with the, the benefit of knowing what I know now, it likely would have been to start to invest in some of the scalability and our product roadmap and product features sooner so that we we didn't go so far down this path of implementing or working for today uh, once we already kind of got some product market fit and instead you know we we've gotten to where we are today through a lot of tremendous hard work a lot of great talent could we be even further along could we be you know even more successful had we uh, you know invested in some of the scalability some of the the reduction of technical debt and some of the, those things that we had done a little bit sooner than when we did them that's probably the the biggest thing so so pushing on that earlier than when we did in hindsight I, I would 
say is a, a, a big focus. And lastly, we built the, uh, the data organization pretty late. We had already invested in data. As I mentioned, we had a, you know, a BI tool way back in 2015, but we had very little support for it on the team. And, uh, and you know, in hindsight, I would have invested more explicit time, money, people on data earlier to, uh, to get to uh, where we are today sooner. Well, last question, Mitesh. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you on the plane right there. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I'd say that the first thing is, is know that success isn't a straight line. For as many good days as you're going to have, you're going to have bad days. And it's going to be challenging and tough times when you, you doubt yourself, doubt you're doing the right thing. And then you're going to have successful days and it's going to go back and forth. And so finding a mentor, finding someone that you can confide in, who can be that, that balance for you, who can help you know celebrate your successes and talk you down off the ledge when things aren't going well to keep you more even keeled and and you know and going forward because you're going to have good days and bad days there's no such thing as as an overnight success uh, i think i heard uh, someone talk about an overnight success you know 20 years in the making which probably sums it up a little better for me so that's probably you know the one biggest thing and then the second thing would be to surround yourself with good people to not be afraid to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you who can teach you things who can raise your level because no matter how successful your big thing is as your company grows you're going to have to grow with it every single one of us at this company is to some extent in a role that we've never been in before and doing things we've never been we've never done before so we all have to stay open to learning and growth yeah at the end of the day i guess a lot of my my answers really come down to to people that's awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of the zebra. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was great to take a walk down, uh, down memory lane, and I really appreciate all the, the great questions. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.